This is Eric Hess with The Encrypted Economy, and this episode's guest is Nigel Smart, co-founder of Unbound Security, which builds solutions focused on securing enterprise cryptographic infrastructure. Nigel, of course, is quite active in the cryptography community and a professor of cryptography in both Kosick at KU Leuven and the University of Bristol. He founded a startup, Identum, which Trendmicro acquired in 2008. And he has a long history in elliptic curve cryptography and research and a numerous other companies prior to that. We cover a lot of ground in this episode and delve into how secure multi-party computation and other privacy-enhancing technologies can simplify how we manage all the cryptographic keys that businesses have and how businesses can efficiently manage the signing process, not just for digital asset transactions, but for software, and even hardware modules that are deployed across enterprises. We also talk about privacy-enhancing technologies that are not and cannot be thought of as separate and apart from existing workflows within a company, but rather a seamless part of those workflows. This is a theme that has resonated across all our podcasts regarding privacy-enhancing technologies to date. These technologies only work if they're seamlessly integrated into existing workflows. And every guest that we've had to discuss it has focused on delivering solutions that do just that. And indeed, Unbound Security is one of those companies and Nigel Smart is focused on those kinds of solutions. So at any rate, I hope you will enjoy this episode with Nigel as much as I did. If you enjoyed it, please like the podcast. Thanks so much, I look forward to hearing from you. And now I bring you the episode with Nigel Smart. Welcome to the Encrypted Economy, where we look at the business of regulation and security for all things encrypted, digital assets, blockchain technology, privacy, and smart contracts. Hope you'll join us while we explore these forces that are shaping the economy. So this is Eric Hess with The Encrypted Economy, and I'm really excited to have Professor Nigel Smart, as well as co-founder of Unbound Technologies. Now, Nigel, he has an esteemed background in cryptology, which he will cover. He is currently a professor at the University of Leuven, which apparently we talked about the pronunciation of this. So by definition, I'm butchering it depending on which part of the country you're in. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about the right pronunciation. So if anybody wants to refer to Leuven, they get it correct. Okay, yeah. So it's KU Leuven, um, which is in the Flemish part of Belgium. And we're saying that if you come to Belgium, actually, and you're in the French-speaking part, then it's actually pronounced Leuven. Or something like that. I can't really pronounce French so well. And it's actually, there's different spellings depending on which part of the country you're in. It's all the same town, just to confuse you. Okay. And then the University of Bristol, which is your professor there as well, that's a little easier to pronounce because it's consistent. And Unbound <laughs> Technologies in any language is probably referred to as Unbound Technologies, and thankfully so. <laughs> so, Nigel, please tell us a little bit about your background and what, what brought you to cryptography, mathematics, and all your work on uh, homomorphic encryption and all the way up through Unbound. Okay, that's a kind of, my God, that's a long story. That's going to take you, that's going to take you hours. Well, give uh, us snippets. <laughs> the snippets. Okay, so I did a maths degree, did a PhD in maths in an area of number theory and was always doing this thing that's kind of like taking some sort of theory thing and then implementing it 
and the kind of natural thing if you kind of do implementations in number theory is to start looking at crypto. So kind of in my late 20s, I kind of moved into crypto and I worked at Hewlett Packard Labs in Bristol for a few years. From there, I joined the University of Bristol and since then, I've been all sorts of things. We founded a company back then called Identum, which was doing identity-based cryptography. I have been a vice president of the International Association of Cryptologic Research, which is the sort of the big society for all cryptographers. Along with Kenny Patterson, I founded the Real World Crypto Conference, which is like a conference that's held every January to bring industrial people and academic people together. Since 2018, I've been based in Leuven in Belgium. And in about 2013, along with Yehuda Lindell, I founded Unbound Tech because basically 2013, for the seven years before that, since about in the mid 2000s, I've been looking at how you compute on encrypted data. So that's homomorphic encryption and another technology, which is called multi-party computation, which I think we'll get into later on. For sure. So at this point, I typically ask my guests for a personal experience or a bit of a story about something that shaped your values or your worldview. I warned you. Oh, oh I <laughs> and I absolutely forgotten. But I actually, I, I think I, I think this is the thing I was going to tell you about. So we have this thing called multi-party computation, and the thing is with multi-party computation is the name, because if you think about it a minute, it says multi party computation so it's it kind of makes you think that you want to do bring multiple parties together and do a computation so you want to bring alice and bob together to do a computation you want to get drug company a drug company b to share their data so they can make a better vaccine that's the kind of thing that everybody always wanted to do and there was this great revelation and i remember it Vividly, we were in a meeting in Tel Aviv, in a hotel on the seafront in Tel Aviv. Anyone's been to the seafront in Tel Aviv? It's gorgeous, very sunny, beautiful, sandy beach. And we're out on a balcony and Yehuda Lindell, he said, come with me, I've got an idea. He says, why don't we, instead of trying to bring people together, why don't we try and split them apart? And at that point, it was just like the bells went off, everything rung and it was just like this amazing moment of revelation. And from that point, that's the moment when actually Unbound was formed because Yehuda Lindell, had, my co-founder, had this idea of instead of like bringing people together like in a marriage council, we're actually going to divorce people. We're going to divorce data. And so we kind of became the divorce agents of cryptography and that's kind of where Unbound started. Apparently, he saw in the like cartoon way, you like having a Tom and Jerry cartoon. He saw the dollar signs moving around my eyes. It's like, man, that's how you make money. So, when you think of Nigel now for the listeners, you need to think of him as both as a renowned cryptologist, a founder of Unbound Tech, as well as a divorce attorney. <laughs> I'd say the the least uh, notable of those would be. The divorce attorney, certainly. But to the extent you're making divorces work, good for you. Yeah. We need, we need more of that. Because <laughs> <laughs> all the divorces I've seen have been nightmares. But anyway, so moving on. So let's talk a little bit about your role as divorce attorney. So one thing I picked up, and I think it also goes beyond that, is 
you know, unbound tech focuses on secure multi-party computation within an organization, right? There's different levels of permissioning. I think I'd like to kind of circle back after we get into this divorce a little bit to, you know, how this syncs up with a privilege access management or identity access management, because that's more of a cybersecurity concept yeah. versus a data protection concept, interrelated, obviously. But when we talk about breaking up, we're talking about breaking up people or we're talking about breaking up data? We're talking about breaking up data. So you're right that we focus on security in an organization. So we're not bringing organizations together. So what we do is if you think about access control, authorization processes, et cetera, within an organization, all controlled by cryptographic keys. So whether that's code signing, you're signing code going out to someone, that's authorization, or it's signing some contract, you know, in some sort of distributed ledger type thing, they're all controlled by keys. And the traditional methodology for uh, securing keys is you put them in hardware. Now, if you put your key in hardware and you do you secure it in hardware, then you've got a problem. You can't use elastic computing capabilities. You have one box. And if you want to double your capacity, you have to buy two boxes. And if you have two boxes and you only use them for one hour a day at max, then you've bought two boxes that are most of the day aren't being used. So you don't have this elastic capability. So what we do is instead of securing the key in hardware only, what we can do is we can split the key up, divorce it. We can take this piece of data and we form a divorce on this key to split it into two. We put one in one box, one in another box in different locations. And then we can enable with the power of multi-party computation to actually perform all the operations you would do if the data was in one place, but never bring it back together. Now, what that does, it does all sorts of things. It means that you can make use of elastic computing capabilities. You can put the key, these separate shards of the key in different locations. And if you had more demand, you just spin up more boxes. If you really want to worry about deep, deep hardware, hard, secure control of your keys, if you're really interested in, you know, having HSMs control stuff, you could put these two shards in HSMs and let the HSMs do the uh, MPC. So and for the listeners, what's the what's HSM? An HSM is a hardware security module. So it's basically the thing that's deep in the bowels of a bank, or it's at, they actually have HSMs in the ATM machines that dish out money. So it's a computer with lots of stuff around it to stop attackers breaking into it. So we can have that. But also, because we've split the key up, we can then actually match the capability of authorizing something to the organizational structure. So, for example, if you take code signing, it might be the case that to sign off a piece of code to go out there, you need one software developer, the manager and someone else or the reviewer, say. And those three people you can actually embed that kind of ability within the cryptographic keys, within the cryptographic operation, such that you can't release the code unless it's actually been signed by the correct people within the organization. But in addition, the person outside the organization verifying whether the code is correct or not doesn't really care. Because you know what? If I download code from a company, I don't really care what their authorization structure is. I just care that it's correct where the only people who really care about the authorization structure are the people inside the company. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Interesting. So could this also be used where data is distributed across an organization where individually 
the data is not useful, but collectively it is? In other words, recompiling? Okay, so this is a different use case, but you can you can use it to, if you have data in an organization, you want to bring it together across Chinese walls or across organizational divides or even intrigue organizational. Um, there's been many cases. A really good example is the Boston Wage Survey. So a bunch of companies in Boston, I think it was about 200 companies in Boston, wanted to work out what the differential was between uh, women's salary and men's salary. So the way you do that is you want to collect statistical information from all the different companies in Boston. Now, surprisingly enough, not all the companies in Boston, in fact, none of the companies in Boston, want to divulge their wage information, but they are interested in looking at this wage differential. So what they did is they did a multi-party computation, which allowed them to pool their data without actually revealing either the um, personal information of the individual employees or the wage structures of the individual companies, but just got the aggregate information out. So that's a kind of bringing data together. That's the traditional marriage counseling version of MPC. And then you could put on the other side of it, the need to have it authorized across multiple parties so that it ensures that the people accessing the even the, the data that is secure is more control. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can have more control. You can kind of embed access control within the MPC calculations. So we did stuff at KU Leuven working on a, a previous DARPA project, which was a book that's called Brandeis Project. And we looked at where you would kind of distribute data, but you'd also distribute the access control. And the access control was operated on in an MPC fashion, such that people didn't even know what the access control policy really was. So you've done a lot of work on elliptic curve cryptography. I would say- A long time ago, it must be said. (laughs) when When you're working on the research end of stuff, you actually, you work on stuff that's just about pre-market. And if you kind of look, we're recording this under HTTPS, yeah? We've already used elliptic curve cryptography to set up this session. (laughs) I've got a mobile phone here. This is doing elliptic curve cryptography connections every few seconds or so in various apps. Every time I go anywhere on the internet, I'm using elliptic curve cryptography. It's not just before market anymore. (laughs) Something that, you know, as a researcher, I did years ago, but it's now so, out there. <laughs> so, so I, I, I take opportunities on the podcast to educate on things that maybe the listeners aren't familiar with. Okay. And you just, since you're the renowned expert on elliptic curve cryptography, even though it's old, <laughs> for many listeners, it's new. Uh, what is elliptic curve tr- cryptography and why is it important versus non-elliptic? Okay. So traditionally in cryptography, if you, any of your listeners have done any form of public key cryptography, they would have heard of the RSA crypto system from the mid 70s, okay? And this gets its security by taking two very large numbers and multiplying them together. For humans, you know, if I take two and three and I multiply them together, I get six, that's easy. If I give you six, then you have to think for slightly longer <laughs> to work out that you can multiply, that two and three divide into it. And as the number gets bigger, it's easier to multiply, but it's harder to split apart. And that also happens for computers. So it's very easy to multiply, but it's very hard to split apart. The trouble is it's not that hard. It's not hard enough to split apart. So RSA keys have to be huge. So they have to be many thousands of bits long. And really to get the kind of security that we would like for modern applications, the RSA key size has to be astronomically huge. And actually no one deploys RSA keys of that astronomically huge size because 
we don't care. It's because everyone's now transitioned to elliptic curve cryptography. So in the last 10 years, you've seen everything translate to elliptic curve cryptography. Signal uses elliptic curve cryptography. HTTPS is using elliptic curve cryptography. So why do they use elliptic curve cryptography? So we have that math problem of multiplying two numbers together. It's easy, splitting it apart is hard. So it, it turns out that elliptic curves are kind of this mathematical structure which has a hard problem associated to it. And this hard problem is much harder than factoring. And the result is, therefore, is that we can make the keys smaller, which means the cryptography fits in smaller devices, it goes faster. So you have less bandwidth, less power, less code, less memory and footprint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it gives you much more bang for your bucks in terms of security per bit, which is really cool. But the other thing that elliptic curve cryptography gives you is that you could do lots more cool stuff with it that you can't do with the RSA scheme. So there's this basically, there's this thing called the Diffie-Hellman protocol. And the Diffie-Hellman protocol comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and different applications. And so, for example, when we do HTTPS, if we're using the new version of TLS, then we actually use a Diffie-Hellman protocol. But Interestingly, in Signal, we also use Diffie-Hellman protocols. And Signal is this kind of really cool application, and it uses Diffie-Hellman in a way which allows us to retain security even once we've lost security. So with Signal, once you lose security, you only have to send a few more messages and you get security back, and it kind of uses this ratchet technology within Signal to do that. So you could do all sorts of cool different stuff that you couldn't do with RSA, and that's why elliptic curves are cool. So what are the limits of elliptic curve cryptography? There's post-quantum computing. Yeah. Is there a so relationship is, there? So this is the big question. So we have this thing called uh, post-quantum. Well, we have these things called quantum computers, which no one's quite built yet. And then if someone built a quantum computer, we are then in the post-quantum world. Okay. So this is, let's look into the future. So if you built a quantum computer of a significant size, you would be able to break RSA and you would be able to break elliptic curve cryptography which means you'd break Signal, you'd break HTTPS, you'd break everything, you'd break into the banks, everything would be insecure, and we'd be back to the Stone Ages, otherwise known as the 1960s in computers, right? So we'd be really bad. So what people are looking at now is there's a big effort to look at something called what's called post-quantum cryptography. And post-quantum cryptography is looking at cryptographic schemes which are secure even when you have a quantum computer. Now... People might have heard of uh, quantum key distribution. This is not quantum key distribution. Quantum key distribution is some physical way of just generating keys. It's not really that applicable in the real world. But post-quantum cryptography is really heavily applicable because what we do is we use it on standard computers, but the cryptography is secure even if the adversary has access to a quantum computer. So the kind of mathematical problems that you get in uh, post-quantum cryptography is a weird problems related to what's called lattice-based cryptography, which is kind of weird multi-dimensional stuff, or actually something that's actually related to elliptic curves, which is quite interesting. There's a new area called isogeny-based cryptography, which adds a much more complex version of elliptic curve cryptography, which is secure against, uh, or is believed to be secure against uh, quantum computers. And I guess once, if there is a entity that develops the quantum computer and uses it in an adversarial uh, context, 
a lot of people are going to be struggling to retrofit because in that interim, arguably, a lot of our infrastructure could be exposed. Yeah, indeed. And so that's why the National Institute of Standards of Technology in the US is currently running a competition to decide on the next post on what the post-quantum cryptography should be. And also at the same time, looking at transitional efforts to what you should do in the meantime. So other organizations have looked at this, ENISA in Europe, Etsy has also done some work on this. So there's a number of organizations not only coming up with the standards for what should happen in the next few years, but also advising organizations on what their transition strategy should be. And it definitely sounds like something that this uh, podcast needs to focus on as well, which we kind of are, but maybe ratchet it up a bit. <laughs> so these days, is that what you're focused on or meaning your newer research, or are you just more focused on bringing Unbound Technologies vision to the marketplace? Yeah. So in my day job at the University of Leuven, what we're doing is we're, well, we're kind of got two strands with what we're looking at. Part of the group's looking at post-quantum cryptography. So we're looking at protocols, more advanced protocols using maybe isogenies or these lattices that I talked about. Because when we do transition to a a post-quantum world, what currently the standards bodies are looking at is signature schemes and encryption schemes. But cryptography allows you to do so much more than that. You can do zero-knowledge proofs. You can do uh, all these weird group signature things. You can do electronic voting protocols. There's all sorts of other stuff that you would like to do. So we're looking at how you can transition these more not totally esoteric cryptographic perimeters, but stuff that's used relatively commonly in, in a bit broader than communications forms of cryptography. And then on the other hand, what we're looking at is how you actually do uh, computational encrypted data in the more marriage counseling type way, how you bring two organizations together to share data. So we're looking at homomorphic encryption there and multi-party computation, but a completely different use case to the one that Unbound Tech's doing. So the encrypted economy sort of tries to bring together, in many ways, two different primary focuses. One is privacy, privacy-enhanced technologies, cryptography. The other one is looking at digital assets. How do you see what you're doing converging with areas like DeFi or layer two, layer three type technologies? It's very relevant. So if you just take permissioned distributed ledger technologies, yeah? So the kind of thing that would be run between traditional financial institutions, there's a really great issues there. So for example, if you have, even if you have permission systems that are run in between big corporate institutions to do finance or asset control or whatever, you have issues to do with uh, with privacy there. You know, you have, you actually don't want to put stuff on a semi-public blockchain, even if it's a permission system, you don't want to put stuff on the blockchain that's private. You don't put your data on the blockchain because your competitors are also looking at the blockchain. So there's clearly you've got a problem there with privacy. So what you do is you put data on the blockchain, which is in some sense encrypted, but then you kind of want to do computations on it. So in some sense, that's exactly the kind of thing we're looking at in terms of how you do the computations. And there's all sorts of issues there in terms of finance. I mean, we're currently looking, spurred on by uh, someone in the finance industry, we've been looking at how you do uh, market processing. So we've been looking at how you process dark market orders, in, even in traditional finance using uh, computer and unencrypted data technologies. We've been looking at um, liquidity matching, which is a big problem in 
finance is if you've got liquidity matching who goes first in terms of sending on the data because you can't pay until you've got money but at some point in the system the money's coming to you so which one goes first to actually match the liquidity up so it's a really big problem and in some sense that's actually part of the problem behind the, the 2008 crisis you know the money was in the system but no one wanted to send the money on because they were kind of didn't know whether they would get the money back you know, so it was kind of like there was a freeze you had you had this liquidity freeze yeah so actually finding methods to allow you to stop liquidity freezing is interesting so that's kind of where on the one hand where you're bringing people together but on the other hand and actually unbound markets uh, product in the space is that if you are controlling digital assets whether you're in a permission system and you're the kind of the validators signing documents or you're a entity and you're putting even in an unpermission system or permission system, you're putting data on the chain which has been signed. How do you control the signing key? How do you secure that? And that uses the kind of and their unbound have, have products which use MPC to secure the signing keys, and they're used in, in a number of digital exchanges around the world to secure millions or if not billions of dollars worth of uh, transactions a day. So it's already being deployed in a yeah. digital asset context. Uh, okay, yeah. interesting. Unbound. That's great. So maybe talk a little bit about expanding a little bit on those use cases and, and, and maybe a little bit about, you know, the obvious use cases for Unbound and the non-obvious use cases and the stuff that just doesn't make sense at all. Okay, so for Unbound, we'll focus on Unbound, which is the, the thing you take the key and split it up. Okay, so if you think about... Uh, so if you look in, in, you know, in the digital asset space, if you have a digital asset, your control of that digital asset comes with your key. Now, there's two issues with the key. If you lose it, you're screwed. And if someone else gets it, you're screwed. <laughs> so this is kind of like these are the two big things. So, so how do you control this? So what we do is we split the key up into portions and we can split them in, into a a redundant set of portions. So, for example, we can split it into, let's give an example, three portions. And if an attacker gets hold of one of them, they learn nothing. However, if you forget one of the portions, you can recover the key just from two. So if you happen to lose the password. So that's kind of, it gives you redundancy in the sense that you can recover on losing one portion, but also prevents the attacker, if he gets into one computer, he can't do anything because he has to do more than one. And we can do a key refresh and all sorts of other stuff to make it much more secure. That's the basic idea. Now, once you've got that, well, I've got my three portions, so that's giving me a bit more access to security. But now I can actually go one further. I could give one of those portions to the CEO, one to the chief finance officer, and one to someone else. So now I've got embedded in the cryptography the access control that I want on the control of the key. I've actually already got sign-off, you know, the kind of distributed sign-off that you have in financial transactions. No one can authorize a transaction on themselves. You have to go through an approvals process. The approvals process is there cryptographically already, which is kind of like, it just comes for free and it's cryptographically enhanced. Whereas in normal systems, you don't get that cryptographic enhancement of the workflow. The workflow is in some sense separate from the cryptography to do the signing. And therefore, you, if you wanted to circumvent the workflow, you could attack the workflow and not the cryptography. I could attack the workflow to say, do this signature and not actually attack the signing algorithm. But now actually, if I want to attack the workflow, I've got to attack the cryptography, which is harder. So I kind of get this combined thing. And also fact, data leakage. You could yeah, exactly. Data leakage, data's not in one place, or et cetera. So I, got, I get a lot of benefits 
in terms of organizational or a lot of benefits in terms of management. If I'm a big financial institution, I'm doing lots of transactions a day. And I do a lot of transactions at three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm not reliant on everything going through one computer. I can, because I've got this ability to split it up, I can split them on different cloud service providers and I can spin up and spin down uh, servers on the cloud. So I get elastic capability. That means it's cheaper. I don't have to buy as many of these hardware security modules as my peak load. And then this use case actually applies to everything. So it's exactly the same issue in uh, software code signing. If you think about it, a digital asset is an asset that's controlled by a signature. Well, software code sign is exactly the same. The asset is the trust is the asset is my computer. The software is correct and it's controlled. It's the correct operating system because it's been signed correctly by Microsoft or whoever's providing the software. And I have the same issue is that one, I want it, I want to distribute the, the signing capability. I want the authorization. It's a distributed authorization. There's a workflow on when the code is actually signed. I can secure that cryptographically. So this gives me, I can do exactly the same there as I can do in the other case. So I have these two use cases and they're kind of like high level use cases. But if you think about any form of digital signature or any form of key use, and we can then also control keys. So even if you have an infrastructure which has hardware security modules, so if you're in a big bank, you've probably got hundreds of hardware security modules, and they're all of different ages and they're different manufacturers. And sometimes you want to provision one hardware security module from another and you want to transfer the keys. This is a complicated thing. But we could orchestrate that using MPC. So we've got orchestration systems to orchestrate the keys and the management. So it makes your management go down, even if you're using traditional hardware security modules to secure keys. So you talked a little bit about the software. Is that in the context of an organization deploying proprietary code or even third-party code? Is it like a, a change management control? It depends what you mean. So um, if it went in the terms of the, the software code signing, yes, you are producing code and you put the, the code out and you sign the code so that your software on the client end knows that it's the correct code to update. So this is exactly how games work. It's how operating systems work, how virtually everything works these days, yeah? So you have this code signing come in so, you ver- so that your client verifies the signature and then installs the software. Now, at the, the software house end, they have to have somewhere produces a digital signature on the code. The question is, how do they do that? And if they're a big software house, that's rather complicated. You know, if you just got three men and his dog, this is not a big deal, right? But if you're a big, big software house, you have to do this. So you have to manage the keys to do the code signing. If you're an operating system vendor or a big games vendor and you push out something that trashes your client's computers... You're not going to be in business in a few months' time, you know. So this is like you get one signature wrong and your company's toast. So you have to you, you put lots of processes in place to make sure you only put out code that's correct. That's it's change an- management, and so therefore, but you can embed that in a cryptographic way, so the attacker can't attack that, or things can't go wrong with that workflow before you produce the signature. Right. So it's about the internal process of the software vendor. It's a much more efficient way of ensuring that your change management processes work. So I'm going to turn a little bit to homomorphic encryption because I've been puzzling over something. With homomorphic encryption, we have encryption at rest. We have encryption in transit. So everybody's like, okay, what about encryption in use? That's homomorphic encryption. 
So now well, we've it's got not only home off encryption. You've got to say so. So this is the point: privacy enhancing technologies. It's privacy enhancing. So there's a lot of other technologies. There's home off encryption could do computational data. MPC can do computational data, and there's other things that you can kind of think of. Zero noise proofs are also a way of doing computation on on data. It's not just home off encryption does that. Completes the other part of the triad. I'm giving in to my fascination with homomorphic encryption. So, yeah, but, but does. I know, <laughs> I know, even me. I'm, I'm getting there, Nigel. You'll help me through it. But when you think about it, you know, we've broken it up into three, three buckets. Yeah. And, and now we've got the bucket side by side, and we say, okay, the last mile, or so it appears. But is it? It's not really, because in some, in some sense, it's the last thousand miles. Because actually, if you, it's just really, really, I mean, just think back if you're doing stuff without encryption, okay? I want to send a lot of data. I could do it via the telegraph, yeah, just with Morse code. I could always communicate large amounts of data. I could communicate with television large amounts of data. So data transmission, relatively simple. You know, just put some wireless up or even some wires if you're going to use a telegraph, yeah? If I'm going to keep stuff stored, well, okay, storage was a bit of a problem in the 1940s, but as soon as we came up with tape drives, has storage been a problem? Not really. So storage is, in some sense, done. The thing that we always run out of is computing resources. So this is why you know we're burning so much fossil fuel to keep data centers running and stuff like that. The insatiable demand for compute goes up and up and up. And it, the same is happening with cryptography. Actually securing data communication Data in transit is easy. We've been doing it since Caesar's time. Maybe not as secure as we do it now, but we've been doing it since Caesar's time. And in some sense, uh, securing data and communication is a done deal. We know how to do it. Data at rest is also a done deal. Just encrypt the hard drive. In fact, most hard drives come already with encryption built in. So it's really, you know, you have to go out of your way to turn it off. So we've already got data at rest secure. Data and computation is completely open. There are technologies out there to do it. There are companies which are marketing products in that space, but they're all very, they're either looking at very, very specific use cases because the technology is not fully mature yet, or they're marketing a form of technology, a bit like SGX, which gives you a level of security, but not complete security. So Computing on data whilst it's encrypted is, is not just the last mile, it's the last thousand miles, it's the last million miles. It's almost never going to be, you know, it's always going to be slower than computing on data in the clear. People always complain their computers are too slow, therefore it's always going to be a problem. Right. So even, let's say it's the last thousand miles. So I get it. The ability to encrypt it in use is obviously, that's where the, the rubber hits the road, so to speak. But let's say we have these three buckets and we link them all together. Can we basically ring fence it and say, okay, we've done our job? Or do we need to start thinking about the breakpoints within even that configuration? Yeah. The, I mean, that's a really, I think very simple. I can compute on data in an encrypted form. At some point, someone gets the answer. Okay, so this is a really famous, this is a famous example. I think it's in California. There's a limit. There's a minimum number of people that have to be in a statistical survey to kind of be able to take averages so you can remove who's actually in the survey. And I think it's about 30. So imagine I've got 30 people Imagine I've got 31 people in a room, okay? So now what I do is I say, I'm going to compute your average wage. Fine. So they all secretly compute the average wage, and I find the average wage. 
okay, of 31 people. And I'm allowed to do that because it's more than 30. Now I do 30 people. I pick 30 people and I say, I compute your average wage. But from those two answers, I can work out the wage of the person I missed out. So that tells us that if we could do the computation securely, doesn't necessarily give us privacy of the data of the individuals, doesn't necessarily preserve security because being able to do computation securely is not enough. You actually have to think about the application. Is the application by default insecure? Is there a way of circumventing this by doing different queries? So this brings us on to different technologies that can solve this problem. There's uh, technologies called differential privacy. And there's other ways of looking at it. You can go, okay, so also if I'm kind of doing some computation, do I watch, do oh, I really need to make this bit public? I can speed up my computation by making one bit public. If I make this bit public, does it uh, impact on the secrecy or the security of other people? So I've got to kind of, you know, I've got to take all these things into account. Great, great. So interesting. And, and what about even like uh, the, the on-ramps or the off-ramps or moving data from in transit to at rest to in use? Is that an area that you think is going to be a, a focus or do yeah, you think it is fairly... Things there. So if you imagine that even if just fetching data, even if I don't know what, if the person... If I'm fetching data from you, I want a book off your bookshelf that's behind you. And, and I decide to take the book off the bookshelf. What I would like to do is be able to take the book off the bookshelf and read it without you knowing which book I've taken, okay? Because it's the access pattern. And it might be that I can take one book off your bookshelf, read it, and put it back. But then I come along and I go, oh, I want to take the same book again. I've, I forgot something. And I take the next book off. That also reveals information. In fact, I ask for the second, same piece of information again. So there are technologies to stop, to help avoid that problem. There's a, what's a problem called ORAM technology, oblivious RAM. It allows me to recover data from a store without knowing, without the person who has the store knowing what data I've accessed. In fact, I could write, I could change the books on the bookshelf. Imagine all your books on your bookshelf are encrypted and I can now access them and change them without you knowing what I've accessed and changed. And that's kind of what you would need to do to secure the data because access patterns reveal data as well. Ah, that's interesting. So also wanted to talk a little bit about the differences between centralization and decentralization when it comes to your technology actually is very good for more of a centralized structure, I would guess. Not really in, in the sense that it's so unbound. What we do is we take a centralized structure and then we decentralize it. And the other application of MPC is where you take a decentralized structure and you make it centralized. So the, this idea of uh, decentralized versus centralization is kind of in this space is kind of what you mean is that more people give you less, more targets. And if you have to recover everybody, you have you, you kind of make the task of the attacker harder. That's what you mean by decentralization. What you mean is is that we're creating multiple targets in the sense, and not that we're making more multiple targets in the sense that the attacker only has to hit one of them, the attacker has to hit all of them. So if we make one target, he's got to hit one person. If we make three targets, he's got to hit all three. So his job is three times harder. So that's what we really mean by decentralization. It's making the attacker's job harder by increasing the number of targets. And in some sense, that's what... MPC in the context of what Unbound Tech does, it makes the attacker's job harder by increasing the number of targets. That's what you have when you have 
decentralized ledgers, whether they're permissioned or permissionless, you make the attacker's job harder by increasing the number of targets. What you do is when you're actually bringing data together, in some sense, you're not there for making the attacker's job harder. What you're doing is you're allowing people to do stuff. You're enabling better business processes by you're allowing people to collaborate where previously they weren't allowed to collaborate. So in some sense, you're there, you're kind of using decentralization to actually, you're not decentralizing because nothing was centralized in the first place. What you're doing is you're centralizing the data without actually having the downsides of centralization. So you've still got security, you're still protecting people's privacy, and then that allows you to have better business processes and do more stuff. So I think this this thing, decentralized versus decentralized, is a bit of a sort of religious thing and... <laughs> yeah, I'm not so interested in it. <laughs> right, right. I wanted to circle back to something I brought up initially and just interested in how your narrative in Unbound connects with the, the concepts of privilege access management, which strikes me as a little more direct, as well as identity access management, which possibly not as direct, but love to hear you kind of link those okay, concepts. So the point is, is all of access management is about control of the key whether it's for privileges or for it's your identity, you have access by control of the key. The question is, is who controls the key? Where's the key reside? And that can be done. So what we do is we do that in a, we secure the key by splitting it up. So that gives you ability to split privileges. And you might go, well, okay, why would I ever want to split identities? Well, okay, you could be schizophrenic, but let's not worry about that. You could be, um, you might want to split your identity because you've got, you actually want to split a roll up. So you're taking identity, you want to split it up. Or it could be that you actually have an identity. I've got an identity. What is my identity? It's me. How do I authenticate myself to stuff? Well, I authenticate myself with passwords, with tokens, maybe my phone, maybe other tokens I've got. And I could actually use multiple tokens and split the keys across multiple tokens. So I could actually use this kind of split key technology across different tokens to actually give identity access and secure the key that's bound with my identity. Wow. Okay. That took me in a different direction. I I totally got the privilege access management before, but now I get the identity access management. That's really intriguing. Like uh, We have have a a, a, a kind of call app with a smartphone, sorry, smartwatch that works with a leading bank. And the smartwatch has one part of the key, the computer has another, and they can log into the computer just by putting their watch close to the keyboard. So that's kind of their identity is their watch and other stuff. And you can do cool little things like that. You might kind of go, well, you could do this without NPC. Why would you want to do this with NPC? So the point is, at the back end of all these systems, you've got a legacy authentication mechanism, which speaks a certain language, which speaks, it requires a Kerberos key or it requires this, that, or a certificate or whatever. And what you want to do is you want to bring more complex stuff without changing the back end, because changing the back end is expensive. You can't go into an organization and say, we've got this really, really cool new thing. All you have to do is change your entire infrastructure. (laughs) You know, this this is never going to fly, right? So actually, all of the infrastructure works with standard hooks. And what we can do with Unbound and with MPC is we can act on those standard hooks. So the hook is oblivious to the fact that it's now talking to an MPC thing. So you can put the MPC application anywhere in the corporate infrastructure. And then the thing it talks to doesn't have to change. And that's the vital thing, because it could be that 
you're actually even talking to a hard, uh, an existing hardware security module and you're talking to it, you're, talk, you're giving the authorization, which is, might be a digital signing key. And then this thing that's doing the authorization could be the MPC engine and it could be the HSM, which does the final signature on your code or on your digital asset or whatever. So here we have, yeah, this kind of like, you can kind of just plug and play and it's easy to make the change in your organization and get the benefit without having to rewire and re-provision your entire organization. So that's the key. That's the real key. That's interesting because, you know, when I had both Kurt Roloff from Duality, as well as Ellison and Williams from Unveil, they both sort of raise that notion. It's like, hey, this sits on top of legacy data. That's the critical component. It doesn't come in and just upend everything and say, you have to now reconfigure, reprogram everything. It comes in and it, it is seamless. And I even had a poor, a Kurt was on my podcast and he said, my mission is really to make homomorphic encryption boring. And I went ahead and I titled his episode with that, which is probably the worst title for an episode. Most people don't say, most people don't read boring in a title and say, yeah, I'm going to listen to that one. I, in fact, I was so embarrassed. I went back and changed it to common. But the point is, is that it's the seamlessness of the technology. And, and his point was really in five years, I don't want anybody to even think about this because it just becomes obvious. Like encryption at rest, encryption in transit today, people don't say, oh, is it encrypted at rest? Oh, is it encrypted in transit? Well, it better be, right? Because if it's not, like particularly if it's on the cloud or in Microsoft or whatever, I mean, still people don't necessarily encrypt their data at rest, which is a shame. But yeah, it's a similar theme of seamlessness and the way that it sits apart and not really changing the underlying legacy data and working with it. I want to make sure we we could also touch upon your recent announcement. You're like, what's he talking about now? It's the Unbound MPC Labs, which is an, an initiative you did out of Unbound. And I'm curious as to why now and what you're trying to accomplish with that. Okay, so Unbounds are in a huge growth space at the moment. We are looking for the future. So we're kind of creating a organization that is going to take us to the next level. We've got great technology. We've got great engineers, amazing engineers, really absolutely spectacular engineers. We've got amazing marketing, amazing, yeah. And so the other thing that needs to um, kind of be there is the ability to generate new ideas, to kind of think about MPC out of the box going forward. So that was the kind of the next part of the kind of growth in the company is to kind of create an R&D that's more focused on R than the D. So that's the kind of where it's going. But also it's a kind of evangelical aspect, you know, to explain MPC to the world, to explain different use cases, to examine, to seek out new use cases and new civilizations, to boldly go where no MPC has gone before. Something like that. Yeah, it's kind of, it's really... We have a Star Trek fan here. It's the Star Trek fan, yeah. It's just purely, it's at this stage in the company, you expect the company to kind of start looking at more long-term research programs because up to now we've been very focused on development the product and keeping the customers happy which they all are which is kind of really really cool everyone who has that product raves about us so that's really nice so i I suppose it's like a way to try to encourage data scientists who aren't necessarily working for Unbound to share and to help develop and... and Yeah, so it kind of, what we've got to say is that we have these two things of MPC. So Unbound, we're not so much interested on the data science side. We may be in the future, but we're kind of really focused on MPC for securing digital assets, securing anything that's controlled by cryptographic keys, which is everything in an organization. So we're using 
MPC to secure the organization. So we're not so much interested at the moment in the kind of stuff that you have with data scientists wanting to process data securely. There are other other companies focusing on that at the moment. Uh, once we get into that, we'll blow them out of the water. But at the moment, we know what we're focusing on. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, Nigel, this was great to have you on the show. Anything that you want to bring up that maybe I, I might have passed over too quickly? I think you were amazing. So and I would recommend... Everyone follows your, your podcast and listens to every episode. And uh, yeah, maybe, yeah, you, I, I maybe think of something and, and I'll get back to you on someone else you can get on the show to talk to. Excellent. Well, Nigel, thanks so much. I appreciate it. It was wonderful to have you on the show and shed more light on multi party computation as well as what you're doing at Unbound Technologies. Thank you very much. Cheers.